Good morning, everybody. Um, we did the creed. We haven't done that in a while. So I want to start by assuring you that you are indeed in a Protestant church. <laughs> this, this, we haven't changed. We're, we're still brand loyal. Um, so if we're in a Protestant church, what does it mean when we say we believe in one holy Catholic church? What, what are we getting at there? Well, the word Catholic anymore, when you see it capitalized, is the, the proper name for that group is Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic by itself does not mean the Pope or that kind of church. So when we say we believe in one holy Catholic Church, we're using that word Catholic in its more general sense, which is universal. It comes, it's got quite a pedigree. It starts as a Greek word, then it goes through Latin, then Old English, and then modern English. So it's been around the block once or twice. And, and why do we confess that we believe in one Catholic church? Well, because if you're talking about Rome, Rome is an institution, you can see the, the, the Vatican, you can see the, the, the cardinals and everything. Do you have to believe in that? It just is, it's there. It doesn't require faith, it's just that's what that is. But for us as Protestants to say we believe in one Catholic church, what we're saying is there is a church we can't see that goes around the world of people who have been saved by Jesus Christ, that's what we have to believe in, is that it's not just Trinity Community Church that's saved, but God has people throughout the world. And so we believe in one holy, God has made them holy, Catholic, all over the world, church. That's what we mean by that. So I just wanted to get that clear. We're still Protestants. <laughs> not planning on changing anytime soon. Um, so with that, I'd like to invite children um, uh, up through third grade. If you'd like to attend Children's Church, your teacher will meet you in the back. Uh, if not, you're welcome to stay with us, too. That's fine. Um, so with that, let me open us in prayer, and then we'll take a look at God's word. Lord, we do. We, we believe in one holy Catholic church, one church that you have saved, one people of God that you have redeemed to yourself all over the world throughout all time. And Lord, it does require faith because... It's hard to imagine what your church looks like in other contexts, in other languages, at other times, in other ways. And Lord, it's just amazing how broad your church is that it can encompass all of those things and still be rooted in one central and beautiful essential truth, and that is who Jesus Christ is. Um, Lord, we pray for the, the church today around the globe, as in many places there is opposition there is ridicule, and there is outright physical persecution and intimidation. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen the faith of the saints around the world to continue to walk with you. Give them grace and mercy, we pray. And Lord, I want to pray especially for other churches in the Antelope Valley that are true to who Jesus Christ is, who believe in the scriptures, and this morning are gathered to worship. Lord, would you fill them all with an extra measure of your spirit? Uh, lead all the saints to trust you more. And uh, Lord, as we now look in your word, we pray for that same thing for ourselves. Holy Spirit, would you fill us? We need you. We're not going to be able to do this without you. Um, and so, Lord, we ask that you would come and that you would um, cause your word to not only make sense, but to, to be beautiful to us and take root in our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, we're in chapter 17 and doesn't this just kind of seem transitional almost? We had a big event in Philippi, and now it just feels like he went here, he went there, and now we're heading towards Athens where the next big event is. I don't know if it felt like that to you hearing, hearing Aaron read it, but it did to me when I was studying it. 
Uh, so I always get twitchy when I'm, I'm like, well, this is just a transition. Well, it's not just a transition. This is inspired. God caused Luke to write this, so it must mean something. He put it there for some reason. So let's take a look at this and see what's going on. What we're going to do is we're going to look at Thessalonica, and then we'll look at Berea. And then what I want to do at the end there, after we've kind of analyzed those two stories, is back up and say, what's the common thread? What is it that Luke is trying to tell us here? So um, the, the section begins, now when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Um, how fast did Luke just move through that? <laughs> Do you know the, the, the distance from Philippi to Thessalonica is over 100 miles? And these guys did this on foot? So if Luke was just using this as a transition, if he was just summing up, he would have sailed right through that, wouldn't he? he? He could have done the same thing. So I'm sorry, it gets a little crowded here. Um, let me do the map and kind of summarize for us and then we don't have to think about it anymore, okay? So Philippi is up here. Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica, Berea, and then down here is Athens. What's going on is there's a thing called the Aegean, um, Ignatian Way. I'm sorry, the Ignatian Way. It starts up here in Constantinople, which was in Istanbul, which was Byzantine. It's been renamed a number of times. It goes all the way across Macedonia. Remember, this is Macedonia. Cuts all the way across to over here, and then there's a boat ride to Italy, or to uh, Italy, and then you get on the uh, Appian Way, which goes straight to Rome. So this was a huge and really important highway that went through that area. So when Paul goes from Philippi to Thessalonica, He's just traveling on that, that route. That's what's going on. So that's, that's the route that, that they're taking. Um, and there, we're done. <laughs> now we don't have to worry about where stuff is. That's where the stuff is. Um, now what we need to do is, is understand what's going on. Paul tra traveled 100 miles, and Luke says, yeah, they went through there. But when he gets to uh, Thessalonica, he stops, and he starts telling us a story. So here's the story. Here's what's going on. Uh, they get there, and where does Paul head? He goes right to the synagogue of the Jews. Now, I've been beating this drum for a little bit. Philippi apparently did not have a synagogue because where they went was to the riverside to the place of prayer. He gets to Thessalonica, and there are Jews here. There is a synagogue, and so that's where he heads. Um, the reason he heads to synagogues first is he's looking for people that will understand what he's talking about, so he won't have to back up and start from scratch. We'll see that next week when he gets to Athens. He'll have to start from scratch with these folks. They're pagan background. They don't have a biblical understanding. And so he'll start in a very different place. But if he goes to, to Thessalonica and there's a synagogue there, go talk to people who already know the scriptures. And, and that's exactly where he had. So he goes into the synagogue. And as was his custom, he went there. And on three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. For three Sabbaths, um, you think three times, right? there's a tradition at that time that the Jews would meet on Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday. So they would have three meetings. So there, there could be a number of times where Paul goes into the synagogue and he says, look, this is who Jesus is. This is who the Messiah is. So he's doing it for a while. He's, he's reasoning with them. That word for uh, reasoning, uh, yeah, he reasoned with them. In Greek, it's dialogue. So what it means is he didn't come in and just pronounce this is the way it is. He's dialoguing with them. He's discussing with them. He's saying, well, let's take a look at this scripture. What does this scripture say? What do you think that means? How do you understand that? 
Um, I've mentioned before the, the forbidden passage or the forbidden chapter of the Bible. Do you remember that? There was an outreach to Jews and they went and they read um, Isaiah 53. And uh, I heard from somebody who, uh, when Sam Rotman was here, the piano player, he was telling us that he saw some people do it in New York. And what they did is they just printed out Isaiah 53, no context, no verse numbers, no Bible, no nothing, handed it to Jews on the streets of New York and said, who does that describe? To a person, 100%, 100 out of 100 read it and went, that's Jesus. So what Paul is doing is he maybe have been taking Isaiah 53 and going, you guys, who is this talking about? Who could fit this description? He could go to any number of scriptures and, and dialogue with them and, and discuss with them and try to draw out, this is who the truth is, this is what this means. So he reasoned with them, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying that this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So he had to explain. He had to decode. He had to, he had to hold the scriptures up and say, what does this mean? He had to show them it was necessary for the Christ to die because there was a huge misunderstanding in the first century about the Christ. For example, in John chapter 12, Jesus says to the crowd, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him saying, we heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? So do you see they had a mistake? They had a misunderstanding. The Messiah doesn't die. Well, Paul is going through the scriptures and saying, yeah, sure he dies. How could he do something like, if you remember from chapter 13 when he was preaching in, um, in Antioch, the Messiah was promised that he would not see decay. He would not undergo corruption. How is that possible unless he died and rose again? So that's the kind of reasoning that he's doing with him. He's proving that the Christ had to die and had to rise. That's the only way he could fulfill the Davidic covenant. And then he says, there's only one person that could fulfill that. There is one individual in all of history who could fit that bill. And that is Jesus of Nazareth because he was crucified. He died. He went into a tomb and he was dead for three days. And then he rose again. And not only did he rise again, he ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand. He fulfilled that Davidic promise that the Messiah would reign forever and reign at God's side. It can only be Jesus. Now, everybody is convinced now, right? <laughs> Didn't work there. Some of the Jews were convinced. Not all of them. Some of them understood it. And some were persuaded. But look who else is persuaded. A great many of the devout Greeks. So those would be the, what we would call the God-fearers. These are Greeks who go to the synagogue. They're very interested in who is this Yahweh, this God of the Jews, but they haven't converted to Judaism. They're still Greeks. So they're in the synagogue, and they're hearing this, and they're going, this is tremendous news. <laughs> this is really great. M many of the Jews, maybe even most of the, I mean, many of the Greeks, maybe even most of the Greeks in that synagogue became followers of Jesus of Christ. And the other group that does is not a few not a few um, leading women. I love, this is one of the Luke trademarks, not a few. Uh, what is not a few? Not a few is a lot. So look at it from the Jewish leaders in the synagogue perspective. Well, some of the Jews have defected. They took most of our Greeks. And the leading women, these are the important, these are the folks that we want in our church because they're important. And they, they bring a good reputation to this synagogue. And, and 
Paul is, is chasing them off. He's leading them astray. So that's who's on Paul's side. Some of the Jews, many Greeks, and leading women. Look at where the Jews go with this. They're jealous. They become jealous of what Paul's done. You've separated, you've broken this really good synagogue. We had a good thing going here, and now you've messed it up with this Jesus. So who do they side with? They side with some wicked men of the rabble. Now, literally what that is is men of the market, market men. They're, they're people who hang out in the marketplace looking for work. And the work isn't always good. Sometimes they're hanging out in the market looking for dirty deeds done dirt cheap. You know, whatever you need. So the Jews go into the market, they round up some of these rabble. That's actually a good way to translate it, by the way, is, is men of the rabble. So they, they, this is who the Jews now aside with, is these thugs in the market. And what do they do? They form a mob. So we've got Paul going with some Jews, most of the Greeks, and leading women, and we've got the Jews going with men of the marketplace, forming a mob. Two very different directions. And so one of the things you need to be aware of here is when you're in a dispute, who's on your side can tell whether you're in a good place or not. If you have to side with the rabble and form a mob, maybe you're not right. Maybe it's time to stop and back off, even though they're going to win, right? They're going to chase Paul out of town. They're going to win because they had the numbers. It's still not a good place to be. That, that's, not, that's an indication that maybe we're on the wrong side here. So they go charging off, and they're looking for Paul and Silas. And they go to Jason's house. Now, Jason just gets parachuted in here. We've never met him before. Don't know who he is. No introduction. Um, he's just Jason. But what we do know is, apparently, when Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica, Jason welcomed them into his home because the accusation is he's received these people. He brought them in. It's, it's his fault they're here. So it could be that in Romans 16.21, there's another mention of Jason. It could be him. It doesn't have to be because Jason's a fairly common name. There was the, the Greek legend of Jason and the Argonauts. And so that might be a fairly popular name. So is it okay if we don't know about Jason? I, I, I'm going to go with it's okay. I, th I think it's all right. What we know is he was on Paul's side. He welcomed Paul and Silas. And when they went looking for Paul and Silas, where they went to was Jason's house. He's, he's going to have them. So when they don't find Paul and Silas, they grab Jason and his family and drag him into the marketplace. This is kind of like what happened previously where they took him into the marketplace. Remember in Philippi, they drug him into the marketplace and brought accusations. Right in the middle of the marketplace was where they did the judgments. It seems like it's a similar kind of thing in, in Thessalonica. And part of the reason for that is, remember, Philippi was a free, what was called a free city. They had their own rulers, their own authority. They weren't under the provisional governor of the area. Thessalonica is that same kind of city. It's a free city. So they have their own rules. They execute their own judgment. So when they drag Jason and his family in, they go right into the marketplace, right before the magistrates, and say, this is what's going on. Now listen to the accusation. What are the Jews upset about? They've preached this Jesus, and they ruined our perfectly good synagogue. What's brought up in the marketplace is they're preaching Jesus, another king, what they're implying is he's a threat to, to, uh, to the, Roman, um, the Roman Caesar. 
He's a threat to Caesar because they're, they're saying that this Jesus is a king. And, and if you guys don't do something about it, you're going to have problems. And the city must have freaked out at that point because they really enjoyed their free status. If they start rebelling against the empire, they lose their free status and most of them lose their heads. I mean, it, it was brutal the way the Romans would come in and take over. So this charge hit that button. It did exactly what they wanted to do. Um, unfortunately, they couldn't bring the charges against Paul and Silas because they weren't there. They couldn't find them. So what they do is they take some money from, uh, from Jason. And when it says they took money from him, it, it was like a bond. It was like he had promised this money, we're not going to cause a riot in the city. And if they cause a riot, then we keep the money. If they don't, well, then you'll get your money back. But we've got to be satisfied that everything's going to be okay. And so they, they let them go and release them. The brothers, however, sent Paul and Silas off. The brothers. Do you see how quick they went from being some Greeks, some Jews, and leading women to the brothers? That's one of the great things about Christianity is because we can form into a family that quick. Now, that doesn't mean you have intimate knowledge of each other and your best buds and, and, and hug and kiss all the time. But it does mean immediately, once we've put our faith in Christ, we have a common bond and we can be called brothers together. We are, we are a group. That's how quick it is. So that's why you can go to another church and feel at home. That's why you can meet somebody on the street and you go, I'm pretty sure that person was a Christian. Just something about them. It's because there's something that happens when we become believers that makes us into brothers. One holy Catholic church. One. One holy, one holy universal church. That's, that's who we are. And so that's what happens is the brothers send off Paul and Silas. And you know, in 1 Thessalonians, they, they, um, that was written, 1 Thessalonians was written probably a couple of, maybe a year after this at the most, because it, there's indications that it was written from Corinth. So where Paul is going to go is he's going to go to Athens and then go on to Corinth. And so from Corinth, he wrote to the Thessalonians probably within a year. And again, in Thessalonians, he calls them brothers. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, he calls them brothers, written probably 50 AD. So when, when people become believers in Jesus Christ, a Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, can look at them and say, you're brothers. That's the power of conversion in Jesus Christ. I think it's pretty amazing that, that we can have that kind of bond that quickly. Now, what happened is they sent them by night to Berea. Um, yeah, sure, they traveled on the uh, Ignatian Way. I keep wanting to call it the Aegean, but it's Ignatian Way. But it's not like it had streetlights on it. I mean, this is first century. Traveling at night was, was dangerous, not just because you might get mugged, which was a live possibility. It was dangerous because you can't see and you might wander off the road and wind up who, who knows where. You could fall into the ocean for heaven's sake. So when they send them off by night to Berea, it's an emergency. The, the, the threat to Paul and Silas is real. It's bad. They're, they've got to evacuate quick. And so when they arrived, they went into a Jewish synagogue. Now, that doesn't mean they arrived that night. <laughs> it meant they left that night. When they arrived the next day, then they went to the Jewish synagogue. So it was, a, it was still a pretty good hike. Um, so that's what happened is that they're sent off, um, and they arrive in the synagogue. So here's the next part. Now they're in Berea, 
And you remember the map, Berea is a bit more inland. It's still along the Ignatian Way, um, so it's a little bit more inland because the Ignatian Way heads away from the, the shore at that point. Um, and that's where they head to is, is Berea. When they get there, they go to the synagogue and listen to the report of these Jews. These Jews were more noble. These were noble Jews. And, and the word there is highborn, but it doesn't necessarily mean they were highborn because what it was was the highborn, the, the, the entitled folks, they tended to have more class and, and be a little bit more secure so they could be more noble is, was the, the, the thing. So that was the term that was be, being used for them was they were this kind of people. They were good, upright people, honest, straightforward people. The Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Um, get the impression Luke was not impressed with the Thessalonican Jews. <laughs> they were more noble. What they did was when Paul came in, he did what he always does. He began to preach in the synagogue. He began to share the truth about who Jesus is. They received the word with eagerness. They didn't just say, well, you know, we'll consider that. Once Paul started talking, they went, you're going to help us understand some of these. We don't never, we understood what that meant. Go ahead. Go ahead. Let's hear it. Bring it on. They received what Paul was saying with eagerness. They were looking forward to hearing it. They wanted to know more. And so what they did was they checked it. After they heard Paul explain it, he'd say, take a look at Isaiah 53. Understand what that means. Read that. They would go, oh, that's great. Then they would go home and they would pick up their scroll and they would go to Isaiah 53 and they would read through it. Well, what could that possibly mean? I think Paul's on to something. I think he made a point. This seems to be the Messiah. It seems to be, you know, this sounds right. This is what they did. What did the Jews in Thessalonica do? We don't like it. We don't agree with it. It's wrong. We're not going to look at the scriptures. We don't care what that says. We, we reject it. These noble Jews, however, they go and they check his word. They want to make sure that what he's saying is right. And therefore, many believed. Because they'd gone back, they'd done their homework, they said, what is it saying? And because they agreed with Paul, many believed. And who else? Not few, Greek women of high standing. So more of these noble women, these important women in the city, not few, a lot, as well as men. Now, the way the Greek is phrased, it could be men and women of high standing, or it could be just talking about the women. It's, it's not clear. Most of the folks translate it as women of high standing and men, so I'll go with that. But looking at the Greek, it's, it's not quite, to me, my unskilled Greek mind, is, it's not so clear. But that's who joins them. That's who, who, um, who becomes part of that church. So this is good news. This is the kind of mission you want to be on. It worked. It, it went well. They heard. They believed. They, they began to trust in Jesus Christ, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed. Oops. Remember what they, what, how did Luke describe them? He said they were jealous. They, that's exactly what was going on. They, they look around, they go, this, Paul is going to mess everything up. We've got this good religion going, and he's coming in, and he's messing everything up. Do they, does that worry about what's true or not? It worries about what the status quo is. We like it the way it is. Don't come in and tell us something else. We have this figured out. And so they're jealous, and so they don't want to hear that. So they, they hear that Paul is, again, proclaiming the word of God. This should sound familiar. This happened already. In, in chapter 14, after Paul has preached in Antioch and he got chased out of there, 
He went to Iconium. He got chased out of Iconium. He went to Lystra and to Derb. And the Jews from Antioch and Iconium follow him to Lystra. And not only do they follow him there, they drag him outside the city and stone him and leave him for dead. So this has happened before. This is a typical reaction. You don't see Jews acting like this, though, do you, today? They, they tend to not be so uppity, right? I, I wish it were so. We have a nephew who is an Israeli who is preaching Jesus Christ, and he put a video up of a rabbi in Israel condemning him, mocking Jesus Christ and saying that he was boiled in animal feces and that, that Etan should be boiled in animal feces as well. It just rabid, railing against it. And, and the sad truth is there is religious intolerance in all religions. Everybody has got one. It's that drunk uncle you wish weren't there. They're just everywhere. In, in, in um, Buddhism, which you think is just wonderful and peaceful, they, they have that kind of stuff. Hinduism, in India, they're, attra they're attacking Christians and Muslims. It's a sad reality. But once we get our religion figured out, we don't like people to mess with it. We don't want to hear about these other things. And so some of us become so violent that we will attack other people like that. And that's what happened here. That's what happened to Jesus. They didn't just listen to Jesus and go, look, you're a country hick from Galilee. You don't know what you're talking about. They listened to Jesus and went, he's got to die. There was something so compelling, so true about he was saying, what he was saying. He couldn't be ignored. He had to be executed. Same thing with Paul. Paul is going to be chased around the empire because what he's saying, there's something so true and so compelling about it, he can't be ignored. He's got to be executed. And, and that's what's happened here. So what happens is they rush Paul out of the city. Why Paul? Why not Silas this time? Probably because Paul has been doing most of the speaking, and so they're looking to him. He's, he's the troublemaker. They rush him out. They send him off to Athens. When he gets to Athens, he says, hey, make sure when you get back to Berea, make sure you have Silas and Timothy join me here. We need to, we need to pair back up and we need to, to continue the mission. And so that's the events. That's the, the story so far. So interesting history lesson. Got some nice you know, travel notes and everything. What is this about? What is Luke trying to tell us? Now, remember, my, my theory on the book of Luke, or the book of Acts is he's writing where he's talking about disciples of, of Jesus making disciples, the next step in the church. So how does, what does this have to do with making disciples or being disciples? Well, what's the one thing that's been common between both the response in Thessalonica and the response in Berea? Because there were very different responses. The one thing that's common is the word of God. What Paul went in and preached was the scriptures. Verse 2, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Verse 11, explaining the scriptures daily to see if the, or examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The Bereans checking Paul went back to the scriptures. Verse 13, the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at a Berea. That's what angered him. So I think where Luke is moving his focus here in this story, in this, this transitional piece, is he's focusing for a moment on the Word of God. And what happens when the Word of God is preached? What is it about the Word of God? So I think this is kind of a good time for us to say, well, what do we believe about the Word of God? We are an evangelical church. We're part of the evangelical free church. The word evangelical has picked up barnacles 
from all over the place. It means all kinds of goofy things to people. What we mean when we say evangelical at its root, at its base is, we say we believe the scriptures are accurate, they're inspired, they're authoritative. That's where we start, is we believe the Bible. That's what we mean by evangelical. There's a lot of things that are added to it, a lot of accretions that kind of pile up around it, but at its heart, evangelical comes from the Greek word for the gospel. We are people of the word. We are evangelicals. And so that's where we start is we believe the Bible. So this chapter, I don't know about you, but it really resonated with me because I was like, this is the, this is, look at what the word of God is doing. This really kind of resonates with me because it authenticates a lot of what my beliefs about the Bible are. It's powerful, it's true, it's accurate, it does things. So that's what we're looking at here is we're looking at the word of God. And if it's the word of God that's being preached, then we can make some inferences. We can branch off of that title, just the title Word of God, and say, well, what does that mean? Well, if it is the Word of God, then the first thing that we can say is it must be true. Because God does not lie. God is not confused. He doesn't not know stuff. That's called omniscience. He knows everything. So he doesn't, that's, this is, remember how Luke, not a few? <laughs> this is the Lucan way of saying omniscience. He doesn't not know stuff. So if God speaks, he speaks from a position of understanding all things. And so when we say that this is the word of God, when God speaks, we can be firmly convinced that this is true because he doesn't lie and he doesn't make mistakes. So when we, when we pick up our Bible, when we're reading our Bible, the reason we preach this, the reason we have it in Sunday schools, the reason we do it in small groups, the reason we encourage you every week, I try to encourage you, read the Bible in a year, we've got plenty of good plans is because it's God's word. It's from the source of truth, it's true, it's accurate. It is God's word. So that's the first thing that we believe about the Bible is because it's God's word, it must be true, it can be trusted, what it says is right. The second thing that I, that I wanna pick up is, it's a word. God has written, God has spoken, God has communicated. It's a word. People use words. Forces don't use words. Electricity doesn't speak to you. It makes you hear things after you grab it and it's alive, but it doesn't speak to you. The universe is not a person. It doesn't speak to you. The word of God is a living person. And person, I don't mean human. I mean a personality, a will, a desire, a mind of his own. The word of God is from a personal God and he has spoken it to you. It's true, it's accurate, it's powerful. It is God's word, and it's personal. It communicates a personal God. And then it's the word of God. God has done this. He's the creator and sustainer of everything. And since his word is truth, complete truth, it's authoritative. It's tr because God can speak all truth, to disagree with God on that, you're not just saying, well, I'm interpreting it differently. What you're saying is, I'm departing from what truth is. Reality has this way of batting you in the head when you kind of deny it. it. It tends to come back at you and get you one more time when you say, well, I think that I can walk through walls. Go try that a couple of times. Pretty soon, reality is going to convince you, you can't walk through walls. So that's why when the word of God is true, 
We have to conform to it because the Word of God is speaking reality. It's not speaking theories or philosophies. It is speaking reality, and you would be best advised to listen to it. So that's why for evangelicals, we say the Word of God is authoritative. What it says, it says with authority. It says this is the way it is. Because it's based on God who is true, because it's based on God, because it comes from God, and God knows all things, when God says something in his word, it has that kind of authority. It has that kind of truth. So we believe that the Bible is God's word, that it's true, that it's accurate, that it's authoritative, that has authority in our lives. But here's the great part, is it's God's word to us. He spoke to us. He wrote a book to you. He, he made it personal. He didn't write it in some language we can't ever understand. He didn't write it in such a way that it's discombobulated gobbledygook that we can never get our head around. He wrote it to us. Yeah, some parts of it are hard, I, I confess. But generally speaking, you can kind of get what's going on in the Bible. That's what we call the perspicuity, perspicuity of the Bible. There's your fancy word for the day. Perspicuity just means it's clear it can be understood. It, it, it means it's not hard to understand. In, in some parts of Islam, they say you can't read the Quran unless you read it in the original um, Aramaic, or, or Arabic rather. You, you won't understand it. You can't understand it. You won't get the beauty of it if you read a translation of it. Because it's this magical document that, that um, Allah kind of imprinted on, on Muhammad and that's it. And then if you actually get around to reading it in, in English translation, it's just these random spurts of statements. There's no like one compelling story. When you read the Bible, what you get is God communicating, communicating clearly. He's telling a story. In the beginning, there wasn't anything. And I spoke and it became. And I created two people, Adam and Eve. I made them. And when I saw that, I said, everything is good. But they rebelled and they broke my law. They went against me. And so from that moment on, I promised that I would redeem them. And I worked through history to redeem mankind to myself. I did this and I did this, I did this. That's the story of the Bible. It's the word to you. So it's, it's a beautiful thing that God has chosen to spoke, speak to us like that. And the other part is I just love the way the Bible is inspired. The way God chose to write to us. He did not engrave golden tablets and have them drop from the sky and then somebody pick them up and, and translate them. He didn't do what happened to Muhammad where an angel jumped on him, wrestled him to the ground and forced words out of his mouth. What you get when you look at the Bible is you hear Paul say, I am surprised that you have so quickly abandoned the gospel. It broke his heart. And when you read the book of Galatians, your heart breaks with him. Paul is actually writing these words. It's his actual feelings, his actual emotions, his actual grief is coming through in the book of Galatians. And God's very word is coming through in the book of Galatians. God chose to do it, not in this foreign way, but that personal, that closeness to us. It just, uh, the, the Christian doctrine of inspiration is just one of my favorites. It's so beautiful that he chose to write the books that way. So it's, it's God's word, it's clear, it's authoritative, it's important, it's true, and it's personal. It, it comes down and it touches us where we live. Now, when I say that the Bible is clear, it can be clearly understood, does that mean it could never be distorted? Tragically, no. 
For example, Peter is writing to, um, to some churches and he says, there are some things in them, that is Paul's writings, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destructions as they do the other scriptures. So Peter writes and he says, look, I know Paul writes some hard things and, and people twist and misunderstand them, but they do that to the entire Bible. He just lumped Peter's or Paul's writings in with the rest of the scriptures. He just said what Paul's written is on par, is on the same level as the scriptures. It's, that's pretty startling that they would recognize that that early, that Peter would say that. But the, thing, the point I want to make here is there are some things that are hard to understand and the ignorant and unstable twist them. So that makes it hard for us in some places to understand the scripture. And, and what we need then is we need help with this. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, this is after Paul has quoted some scripture. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So when we go to the scripture, we say the scripture is clear. Have you ever had that feeling where you go, I understand the gospel. Why doesn't everybody believe this? <laughs> it is so simple, so beautiful. You don't have to do anything. All you've got to say is, I'm putting my trust in Jesus Christ. Why doesn't everybody get that? It, it should be obvious. When I read some of the scriptures, I go, why do people hang up on this? I don't understand how this could be hard. Well, the truth is it's spiritually discerned. There is a possibility of reading the scriptures and distorting them, getting them wrong. For example, in John chapter 8, Jesus is arguing with some of the Jews, and he says, I know that you're offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard of from your father. Your father is the father of lies. These Jews he's arguing with, these Jews he's engaged with, they knew the scriptures. They could quote the scriptures. They knew the scriptures. What they didn't do is they didn't love the scriptures. Jesus' word had no place with them. The Bible did, but, the, but Jesus' word didn't. So here's the thing, it's not enough to be an offspring of Abraham. When, when John the Baptist came out preaching, he said, look, I know you guys are children of Abraham, but I'm here to tell you, God can raise up children to Abraham from these rocks. So don't, don't claim that as something. What he came out and said is, you have to repent. You have to be ready for the Messiah. He's coming. You need to be ready. So it's not enough to say, well, I have this parentage. I went to this church most of my life. I, I, I was brought up in this tradition of the faith. I, I knew this catechism when I was a child. That doesn't count. It won't do it. It won't carry any water. I know you're children of Abraham. That's not sufficient. You can even be able to cite a bunch of Bible verses. That's not sufficient. That's not enough. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter how much scripture you know. My word finds no place in you. So what do we got to do? Good heavens, Tim, get me out of this spot. What we have to do is exactly what happened with the uh, Thessalonians, or the uh, Bereans. They received the word with expectation. They excited when they read the word. They were engaged with it. They wanted to hear more. They wanted to dig into it and go, I want to understand these things. So it's not enough to just be able to cite John 3.16. How does John 3.16 make you feel? How do you feel about John 3.16? Do you read John 3.16 and go, yeah, football. 
guy in the backfield holding up a sign? Or do you read it and go, wait a minute. God so loved the world, this broken, fallen disorder that I'm in. God loved that. And he sent his only son, his one cherished. That is the most beautiful truth I've ever heard. That's the difference between the Jews in Thessalonica who were, hey, don't mess up my synagogue. We got a thing happening here. And the Jews in Berea went, no, we want to understand this. They received it with excitement, with expectation. They wanted to know more. They found the word of God beautiful. They found it true. They found it accurate. Ah, okay. So how do I get there from here? I find the word of God interesting. I find the word of God confusing. I find the word of God boring. How do I get to the place where I find it beautiful? Well, here's what has to happen. Remember in chapter 16, the first convert in all of Europe? Lydia. They landed in Macedonia. They preached the word of God to Lydia. And what does it say? God opened her heart to understand the scriptures. That's what I mean by the scriptures are spiritually discerned. You need the help of the Holy Spirit to help you understand that. You need the help of the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, to open your heart, so that you will look at the word of God and go, that is a beautiful thing. It's confusing. It's complex. It's glorious at places. It gets really ugly in some places, but it is a beautiful thing that God has given me. You need to have the Holy Spirit. Because sin is a present reality in the world. Remember how the story began? Everything was very good, and then sin entered. Sin corrupts everything in us. It corrupts our mind. It corrupts our will. It corrupts our, ro- our reason. And so we can't go to the scriptures without help and get the right answer. Because what we'll do is we'll twist them to Thessalonica. It's about us. It's about my thing that I got going. It's, it's about, I'm going to use it in this way. So I can know the scriptures, but I can understand them incorrectly. We need the Holy Spirit to open our hearts, to open our minds, to lead us, to believe that, to see it as beautiful, to accept it as true. So that's why James tells us, in James chapter 1, verse 18, he says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth. He made us to be born again by his word of truth. That's how you get born again, is you hear the word of truth and you, you, um, you engage with it because God by his will has brought it to you, that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The implanted word. How did it get implanted? The Holy Spirit opened Lydia's heart so that she could believe and understand the scriptures. Receive the implanted word with all humbleness, with all humility, because the implanted word is able to save your souls. So that's, that's our doctrine of scripture. That's our approach to scripture is it is this beautiful thing It is a story that God tells, and it's about Jesus. Because that's what they got upset about. This Jesus who I proclaim to you, he is the Messiah. And I open that to you from all of the scriptures. Do you find that beautiful? Is it beautiful that Jesus came and died for you? Is it beautiful that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son? 
If not, if those are dry facts, please ask God to open your heart to understand the scriptures. I still remember, I think I told you last week, I'm going I'm to tell the stories over and over again. When I got converted, when I became a Christian, I was reading the book of Acts. And when I started, it was just an interesting story. And about halfway through somewhere, maybe even around here, God opened my heart to understand, and I, oh my gosh, this is true. And not only was it, oh my gosh, this is true, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. This, this Jesus is real. What, he, what they said he did, he actually did. That, that's the Holy Spirit will open your heart and open your eyes so that you can understand. And it can save your soul because it can lead you to Jesus. So to be a disciple... Part of it is the word, part of it is the love of Jesus, part of it is the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's disciples making disciples. You go out and you freely preach the gospel. Let me tell you all about Jesus. And when God wills, he will open eyes and open hearts and he'll lead people to himself. We've been given the tools, we've been given the scriptures. That's what we need to go take to the world. Let's pray. Lord, I think of how many copies of the Bible I have um, here at the church and at home, um, the, the, the numerous versions that are now available to us online so we can get to them anywhere because we have smartphones that can access the internet. Lord, we are awash in your word. And Lord, I pray that it would not become like water in a fishbowl to a fish, just there. Lord, I pray that you would, through your spirit, remind us of the beauty of your word, of what it is, of what it says. And Lord, Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts to understand? Lord, would you make it possible for us to spiritually discern what's being said, to understand those words, and to grow in grace because you've told us these things? Lord, don't ever let us take it for granted. And, and Father, when we go out and we share this message with the world, I pray that we would have confidence in the Bible, that it is true, that it is authoritative, that it speaks clearly to what is true. And Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your word. You would encourage people to be faithful to your word. And Lord, that here in the Antelope Valley, you would make your word spread, that it would be like the seed given to the sower, just scattered abroad, and, and there would be a harvest. Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen.